0: Hello and welcome to Israel War Briefing, a new weekly podcast from the Jewish Chronicle offering deep insight into the crisis in the Jewish state as it continues to unfold. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle and author of Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. Each week I'll be asking an expert commentator for their analysis of the latest developments and reflections on what comes next. Today is uh, Friday, November the 3rd. It's the 27th day of the war, and I'm joined by uh, Rich Goldberg, beaming in from Washington, D.C. Rich is a senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in D.C., and a former officer in the U.S. Navy Reserve with military experience on the joint staff and in Afghanistan. Rich previously served as a director for countering Iranian weapons of mass destruction for the White House National Security Council and as a national security staffer in the Senate and the House of Representatives. A leader in efforts to expand U.S. missile defense cooperation with Israel, Rich played a key role in U.S. funding for the Iron Dome. He's also the co-host of Jewish Insider's Limited Liability podcast. Rich, fantastic to have you with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Rich, first of all, we've, we've just seen Hassan Nasrallah's speech in Lebanon, which was a significant moment with a big audience, both domestically and worldwide. I just wanted to start off by getting your immediate reaction to that and what bearing it might have for the US military decision-making in the next period.
1: Uh, Well, I would say good news and bad news uh, out of the speech. The good news is that it was mostly bluster Uh, And all the fears that this uh, speech would be the beginning uh, of a massive open front uh, in the north, uh, a bigger expansion than what we are seeing, which is a relatively low level uh, war going on of 30 to 50 rockets per day, anti-tank guided missiles. It does not nothing. If we didn't have October 7th and the war in Gaza, we would say we have a war between Hezbollah and Israel but we're not seeing the 150,000 rockets opening up from the North, the precision guided munitions. And the question has always been, will you see that escalation? Is this speech that got a lot of hype in Lebanon, uh, the precursor for that escalation? And it was a lot of nothing uh, from deep inside his bunker uh, telling us that he's very proud of Hamas and thinks October 7th was wonderful and Hezbollah is somehow doing their part and all their martyrs are being taken care of in heaven. Uh, but uh, in some ways, you know, patting Hamas on the head and saying, "Keep going, Hamas, you know we're 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 here, we're cheering for you, but not providing any massive distraction uh, on the northern border at the moment, at least that can always be a lull. Um, but at the same time, I thought very interesting uh deciding to insert into this speech, and remember, Nasrallah's strings are pulled in Tehran, so when you're hearing Nasrallah, you are hearing the Iranians. And goes out of his way to say, what you saw on October 7th was planned in Gaza, was planned by Hamas. We had nothing to do with it. Iran had nothing to do with it, is the implication. Dresses this, even talks about how there's people out there trying to distract and say, you know, they want to invoke Iran's nuclear program. Out of nowhere, just talks about Iran's nuclear program. Uh, And so I, I do think you are also seeing the hand of Tehran here and a little bit more of their strategy uh, that's playing out, where they are bleeding Israel uh, at multiple fronts. Obviously, there is a conflict in the north that Israel has to deal with and prepare for. There are missiles flying from the south, from Yemen, that Israel has to account for. There are militias in Iraq and Syria firing on US bases. And the Iranians are trying to distance themselves from Hamas on October 7th, while keeping all the fans of terrorism flames alive, all across the region. Why? Because if they can separate themselves, they have a chance of keeping their nuclear arrangement going with the Biden administration, getting some cash in exchange for not crossing the nuclear threshold, while at the same time showing some sort of restraint uh, by not opening a front uh, on the north in, in, uh, with Hezbollah. And so somehow Iran's playing nice now, so they deserve more money. Uh, after likely coordinating, orchestrating everything that we have seen. So um, good news, there's no massive escalation on the Northern Front yet. Uh, bad news, the Iranians are playing us, and they're doing a good job of it.
0: Right. So, I mean, on that note, let's take us back to October the 6th, before the world changed into the, the before and the after. Um, and can you just talk a little bit about the American security posture as it was on October the 6th? vis-a-vis Iran in particular, but also threats uh, from Hezbollah, from Hamas, and on the West Bank. How did the world look to the Biden administration back then?
1: Yeah, I think you came into this year uh, with the Biden administration starting to look towards its re-election. Uh, obviously, next year is an election in the United States. Uh, there is a lot of stress on the administration with the conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine. That is the number one priority now for the Biden administration, all focus on support for Ukraine uh, and pushing back on an increasingly isolationist uh, population that is questioning that support. At the same time, a lot of stress in the U.S.-China relation uh, and a decision to try to seek de-escalation between the U.S. and China. And that's a whole other controversy here in the U.S., which we don't have to get into, but a policy decision to try to clear the deck so they can focus on Russia uh, as as the issue that they're dealing with while de-escalating with the Chinese. So they don't have a standoff over Taiwan, uh, over the Philippines or other issues in the South China Sea. Uh, And then on the Iranian front, you saw the same type of de-escalation move, Uh, whether it is ideological. You know, obviously there was a campaign promise to pursue the return to the old nuclear deal. The administration was running after the Iranians for two and a half years trying to get that nuclear deal done. The Iranians kept saying no. The Iranians then had an uprising on their hands for several months, uh, going back to last September with Masa Amini's death. So politically, it was almost impossible to do a deal with the Iranians publicly. Their increased support for Russia to arm them with drones against Ukraine, even further complicating the idea of doing a deal with the Iranians. And yet... There was this fear of Iran still moving forward with the nuclear program. We don't want a confrontation. We don't want a military escalation. Uh, so what do we do to de-escalate? We'll offer money. Right. And through the early summer months, we saw the spigots opening up, money being made available in Iraq and Oman. We all saw the hostage deal. That got a lot of fanfare just a month prior to October
0: 7th. And that's when when de-escalation began to feel to many commentators a bit like appeasement.
1: Correct, correct. From my perspective, that's what it is. It's um, a pretty straight extortion racket at this point. We'll pay you money. Just don't go to 90% enriched uranium. You're not getting anything else. You're not down blending their enriched uranium stockpiles. You're not reducing the threat in any way. In fact, it's expanding... Uh, laterally, uh, while they stay just under 90% uh, enriched uranium. But to not have that crisis point, not have that red line be crossed, you open the valves of cash in, in a pretty simple protection racket. Uh, and that was the posture over the summer. And remember, in the in West Bank, in Judea and Samaria, we had seen a lot of focus for a year and a half of the Israeli military uh, trying to root out Iranian-backed cells. Uh, terror cells that were behind attacks in Israel that were fomenting violence, trying to collapse the Palestinian Authority. The Israelis were very focused on the West Bank as the primary uh, uh, vulnerability point, so they thought. Uh, A lot of chatter being pushed out by the Iranians, by Hamas, that they weren't interested in conflict right now. Uh, Hezbollah was flashing red already. A lot of commentary before October 7th about a potential conflict in the north. Uh, The the defense minister, Gallant, had already given statements trying to deter the north, saying that we'll send uh, Lebanon back to the Stone Age if Hezbollah opens fire on us. That's before October 7th. So the one piece of this that nobody was paying attention to was Hamas. Uh, And uh, in fact, uh, that was the one piece that uh, decided to uh, commit the October 7th uh, atrocity, but obviously in coordination with all of these other mass distractions.
0: Right. And now it's, in a way, the balance has shifted in the opposite direction. The world's attention is now on Hamas for reasons that are quite obvious. Is there a danger in your mind that attention is being deflected from the Iranian nuclear program, which at the last glance was about two weeks away from fissile material for a warhead?
1: Oh, 100 percent. This is a very dangerous moment for us to be taking the eyes off of Iran, their nuclear program, what they're doing inside of Iran. And that's quite intentional in my view. Uh, Remember, what does this all look like? What is the chessboard from Tehran's perspective? We can talk about what Washington sees, but it's almost irrelevant what Washington sees. What matters is what Tehran sees on the chessboard. And so for two years or so, since Naftali Bennett launched this uh, octopus doctrine that he called it, where Israel decided to use the Mossad to take the fight against Iran inside of Iran and not fight with tentacles, as they use the metaphor, instead go after the head of the octopus, uh, that they were getting bogged down by these things in the West Bank, that they were getting bogged down by being deterred by Hezbollah in the North, that they needed to just deal with Iran, inside of Iran. You saw spectacular events, drone strikes, uh, people being taken hostage, IRGC commanders, uh, things just blowing up, entire drone uh, armadas just being wiped out in Northern uh, Iran, uh, potentially launched Strikes from northern Iraq. And so that was building a lot of pressure alongside the uprising uh, that was again destabilizing the regime and putting Iran on its heels. And so if you're facing this octopus doctrine and the Israelis are going for the head, then it would make perfect sense to try to get all your other adversaries off the board first. So they cut a deal with the Saudis, then they cut a deal with the Americans, and now focus all your time and attention on whipping those tentacles back up, making Israel have to deal with the tentacles, putting Israel back on its heels, while the head, therefore, is intact and able to concentrate on its longer-term strategic priorities like the development of nuclear weapons.
0: Right, and this, this brings us to a question which has been much debated over the past few weeks, which is the extent to which Iran was responsible for commanding, for directing the October the 7th um, attack. Now, from this end, from a UK perspective, the sources that I have have been indicating to me that that they didn't know anything about it. And in fact, one said that if, funnily enough, if the Iranians had known about it, then the Israelis would have known about it because all of the Israeli intelligence firepower, as it were, and capabilities are focusing on Iran at the expense of Hamas. Do you agree with that analysis? Or do you go with the counter view, as we've seen in the American press that actually it was directed by Iran?
1: I think this conversation itself is instructive, because as a former intelligence officer, I would think about my enemy and what they think of my sources and methods and the steps that they're taking to try to evade my intelligence collection. And so if it's standard conventional wisdom that the Israelis are somehow tapping the phones of Iranian leaders or of senior officials or of Hassan Nasrallah in Lebanon— then it would make sense to change your operational uh, guidelines to ensure operational security. And so it would make very sense. If you look at all the reporting, um, it indicates that this is a plan concocted some time ago with direction put into the field to go carry something out and don't hold a daily, you know, virtual teleconference. Don't hold a VTC with the Supreme leader to tell me how it's going because the Israelis will be listening. Don't, don't, pass notes to Hassan Nasrallah, because that might get picked up. Keep this at the lieutenant level. There will be IRGC officers who will know what they're doing. They're empowered. They'll make decisions. There is a cell that's in Beirut that coordinates the tactical level for Hezbollah, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad by the IRGC. We've learned about that in the wake of the 2021 war. So it makes perfect sense to have material, people who have been trained, uh, to just say, okay, go go do something spectacular. Don't report back. Go do something spectacular. You know, hit them back so that we can get the tentacles to distract them and not worry about what they're trying to do to us inside Tehran. These two things are not mutually exclusive. It does not mean that Iran wasn't behind this. It means that the way that they are operating should also make us a lot more worried about what else we might be missing in their operational planning throughout the region and inside of Iran itself.
0: Right. So you think that in a way the Iranians may have set a dog running and then didn't monitor it, but they knew that something was going to happen at some point at a point at a moment that was strategically advantageous to them.
1: Absolutely. You look at the intelligence planning that went into this. You look at the different tactics that were used. Uh, ground, sea, air, you look at the different weapons that they were using have been confiscated that have Iran's fingerprints on it, Um, the ideas of taking drones and making them into things that can drop uh, rockets and mortars into bombs, I mean, all of these have the hallmarks of the IRGC's creativity on the cheap of taking something and making it lethal and then training somebody on how to use it. Uh, This is what they have done for years. And so it absolutely, to me, says Iran was behind this, uh, whether or not at a high level they they directed this on a day-to-day basis leading up to it. The intelligence apparently does not support that. Uh, and again, that's not mutually exclusive with the idea that Iran directed and at a uh, tactical level had IRGC officers, case officers involved up to October 7th. Uh, That just were under orders not to report back up in case uh, you jeopardize operational security.
0: Right. And we saw that even with the Hamas uh, terrorists using motorcycles to infiltrate Israel, which is not a technique which is known uh, to be used by Hamas in the past. It's more characteristic of IRGC trained militia.
1: Uh, That's right. And the way that they stormed the beaches, um, the whole concept of the paragliders and, and what they did there. Um, you look at the kind of maps and uh, materials that have been taken off of some of the dead and captured terrorists uh, and and the sophistication of those intelligence uh, guides, um, you know, possible this is all Hamas. We've learned there's some reporting coming out of Israeli press that a lot of the people who perpetrated this had uh, been people who received work visas uh, to come over to help on the Israeli side and do different jobs And they use that opportunity to collect intelligence, surveillance, and report back on vulnerabilities, what they saw, who's where. Um, So that that could just be a Hamas scheme. But you look at the totality of what we know of Iran's support for Hamas, their coordination cell in Beirut, the reporting we've seen out of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, multiple sources in Hezbollah, in the IRGC, saying that Iran had a hand in this. I mean, is that just that they want to take a press release, they want to impress people. While it's not true, it's possible. It's possible. Um, Occam's razor would tell us that Iran was behind this.
0: Right, and October the 7th was a massive failure of intelligence, um, both on the Israeli part and on the part of Israel's allies, including the US and the UK. Um, Can you just reflect a little bit on the sea change that it has caused in the prior security assumptions about the status quo, about our defenses and about how effective they were. How much of a game changer is this and how has the game changed?
1: Uh, It's a huge game changer uh, in the, uh, I would say the hubris factor uh, of not just Israel, but the United States, the West, uh, our feeling of uh, superiority because of our intelligence collection, uh, because of our military capabilities, because of our defenses, uh, believing that our enemy is stupid, uh, and and our enemy is not stupid. Um, they're horrific, uh, they're evil. They want to kill us, and they want to cut up babies and women. Uh, but they are methodical, and they plan. And they look at our vulnerabilities and they study them closely and anything they can get their hands on to exploit those vulnerabilities, they will do so. And so I think it does force us, uh, we call it in uh, the military and intelligence, red teaming, where we always have to take a look at plans, operations, uh, infrastructure, and, and have people look at this in a new lens as if you're the enemy. Everything needs to be looked at again. Everything that we do, all that we operate, not just on the Israeli-Gaza border, but vis-a-vis the totality of the Iranian threat network. includes the nuclear program, the missile program, the IRGC, uh, all of their different tentacles throughout the Middle East, uh, their operations abroad, their networks in Britain uh, and elsewhere, which we've learned about from the Jewish Chronicle. All of these things mean we, we need to reset our assumptions and start thinking about how we are doing intelligence collection, Uh, and how we are doing uh, defensive measures and offensive measures uh, to defend against and defeat threats uh, from our adversaries.
0: And in terms of the military response and the military posture from now on, um, I've heard speculation that Israel is going to have to adopt a much more aggressive posture because what October the 7th demonstrated was you cannot rely upon your enemy having capabilities and not using it. You have to extinguish those capabilities and show a powerful deterrence and overcoming Hamas because Hamas is relatively small, is not a significant significant enough deterrent. Are we going to see Israel going after Hezbollah, do you think, in the next year?
1: I think this is a critical question. Um, I don't know how Israelis continue to live in the north of Israel with Hezbollah intact the way it is today. I would not want to live on a border town after watching what happened on the border of Gaza and knowing that that could happen any day from Hezbollah. I would also be very fearful on uh, the concept of being deterred by Hezbollah and therefore being deterred by Iran long-term. I worry that the fear, the weakness that is in some way signaled by the Israelis right now that they are doing everything possible to avoid a Northern front, While it's true, you want to avoid a two-front war if you can, saying it out loud so many times really expresses your own fear of that two-front war. And if I were in Tehran, I read the Israeli statements and the bellicose rhetoric, in some ways, as real uh, effectiveness of Hezbollah's deterrence against Israel. And so if you are thinking about disrupting Iran's nuclear program, you know that Hezbollah's threat is their primary response to any attack inside of Iran. Uh, if you are thinking about just ensuring there's no threat against northern and central Israel from Hezbollah, uh, you have to be able to unwind that threat, destroy that threat, degrade that threat. And so when exactly is that going to happen? Um, if not now, when? It would be is one of my questions. Now, right now, the Israeli Strategy appears to be to deter all other th- fronts to the extent possible, try the, to get the Iranians not to escalate, try to get Hezbollah not to escalate, make bellicose threats, get the Americans to make vague threats, and maybe Nasrallah gets squeezed by the Lebanese and he doesn't want Lebanon to get bombed into the Stone Age and be blamed for it. Could be. I mean, he kind of takes direction from Tehran ultimately when push comes to shove. If Tehran really wanted him to escalate right now, he'd be escalating. So I see a very troubling scenario right now. Look at the world pressure starting to mount from Washington, from London, elsewhere, trying to get the Israelis into pauses and potentially ceasefires without the job being done, with Hamas remaining in place, while also saying, let's contain, let's not deal with any other threats today. Let's leave those threats intact for tomorrow. Well, Iran sees that whole chessboard and says, wow, we might come out of this amazing You know, stronger than ever, more feared than ever, Israel weaker than ever. Hamas survives. The totality of the threat in the north is retained. The Iranians are able to advance internally on the nuclear missile side and keep all the money flowing from the nuclear deal at the same time. Wow. They have really played this.
0: Now, let's think about this from the American point of view. We've seen two aircraft carriers going into the region from the US, uh, and we have had further troop deployments from the US in recent months anyway in the region. Um, Let's say things do kick off, as we say in in Britain, um, on Israel's northern border with Hezbollah. What do you think the American options would be to support Israel? How many of those options do you think the Biden administration would bring into play? And with the election on the horizon, what chances do you, th- do you give America staying the course?
1: Well, first, let me just say that uh, it's welcome news that the president sent two, not just one, but two carrier strike groups into the region and has been passing messages from all we understand to the Ayatollah to tell him that, that America means business. Whether the Ayatollah believes it or not, it, they can't discount it. There's so much firepower now In and around Persian gulf the red sea eastern mediterranean whether you're the ayatollah whether you're hassan nasrallah even if you say it's a five percent chance that the americans would involve themselves would use military force a ten percent chance that has to factor into your risk calculus because that's a lot of firepower and you don't know exactly what's going to happen any given day especially if somebody does something maybe you weren't sure what was supposed to happen or you didn't want that exactly to happen and something goes boom in a certain way and or some Americans die. Um, and then the president's forced to retaliate in a much more extensive way. So it is helpful to have the force posture there to the extent that you can try to project deterrence even if there are the mixed signals as I talked about with the nuclear deal. If however, deterrence fails uh, and you do have a major escalation on the Northern front Uh, The American military role there is less to play offense against Hezbollah um, or Syria, more to augment Israel's missile defenses. The same type of Aegis destroyer you saw in the Red Sea intercept the cruise missiles from Yemen uh, a week and a half ago or so. will also be in the eastern Mediterranean ready to intercept Hezbollah cruise missiles, UAVs, Uh, Potential ballistic missiles, uh, whether it's Syria or Iran, uh, in addition to all of the different missile defenses that you've seen the Israelis carrying out both by air uh, and from uh, surface, uh, the Aero system, uh, David Sling, and and Iron Dome. uh, You'll see the U.S. Navy provide potentially evacuation, um, you know, a non-combatant emergency uh, evacuation order. Uh, out of Lebanon, if that was necessary to get people out, especially Americans out of Israel, if that was necessary to get people out, especially Americans. Uh, so that's that's the primary role that's there. Should Assad involve himself? Uh, should the IRGC get involved? Should there be something that rises to a strategic threat to Israel in that conflict? You do have the option of using the firepower, the offensive firepower that those ships provide tomahawk missiles and the like um i don't see that being the primary mission there uh, but it is an available option if things were to escalate to such an extent where you're talking about an existential threat to the state of israel's existence uh in general the israelis don't ask us to fight offensively for us for them for them uh us being the americans uh and um we don't want to do that um if we if we don't have to
0: And what about the Saudis? I mean, there was a very, very interesting detail that came out a couple of weeks ago where a a Saudi force intercepted a missile that was fired uh, over over Israel. Um, What is your interpretation of that? As As I understand it, it's a historical first. What's your interpretation of that? And do you think that we may see more Saudi involvement as we go forward?
1: Well, remember, we we have provided the Saudis uh, with uh, Patriot batteries. Um, in the past, we actually had uh, stationed a FAD uh, missile defense system as well there. We, we had since uh, removed that uh, during the Biden administration. But those Patriots have proven effective over time in defending uh, airports, critical infrastructure against the missiles that the Houthis uh, have been launching over the last few years against Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, They are always uh, on standby, uh, ready to intercept um, any ballistic missile launches or cruise missile launches coming out of uh, Yemen if they uh, move into Saudi airspace or very close. Uh, And so to the extent that the uh, Houthis, remember, all these missiles are provided by Iran. The Houthis are owned and controlled by Iran. Uh, To the extent that these missiles come over Saudi territory, they have the Right of self-defense uh, to defend uh, Saudi territory, Saudi airspace.
0: But the missile that uh, so was, not, was not going over into Saudi territory was it? It was over Israel, I understand it.
1: the The reports on the Saudi intercept I have seen mixed reports on. Right. Uh, I, I I did see something that was trying to indicate that the Saudis did this because it was Saudi airspace uh, for for one of the missiles. Obviously, the Navy took care of several others. Those that have been uh, not the cruise missile variety. Uh, but the uh, surface uh, to surface missiles, ballistic missile launches, uh, a medium range ballistic missile launch was intercepted by the Aero Missile Defense System of Israel that was targeting a lot. Uh, and then we did see just in the last day or so uh, another cruise missile, I believe, that that they supposedly shot down with an F-35. So the Saudis are there. Uh, it's Additional resources, American made missile defense uh, provided to, for the defense of Saudi Arabia. Let's just say it's fun to see the Saudis uh, intercept a threat against Israel. Uh, It's a shared enemy, uh, the Houthis. But also remember the Saudis have boxed themselves into this de-escalation pact with Iran earlier in the year. Uh, And that was the first move that the Iranians made to sort of uh, neutralize the Saudis as a threat for the rest of the year. And uh, to the extent that they are boxed in by that, I think that they are still sorting out uh, what they can do next, because they have pledged not to uh, attack Iran. They've avoided criticizing Iran in public remarks and press ever since that deal. Um, they have pivoted themselves in public rhetoric to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, shying away from what had been several years of Mohammed bin Salman focusing on the Iranian threat. And so that has actually put them in a, in a difficult bind uh, as these uh, uh, events take place in Gaza, At the same time, you have not seen the Saudis really taking a harsh stance. Um, They did in the first few hours uh, of of October seventh. They were harshly criticized for some of the statements that came out of the foreign ministry. Uh, And since then, you've seen either a balance of condemnation of Israel out of the foreign ministry, but also calling out Hamas, or muted reactions uh, as things are escalating in, in the region. Meanwhile, Uh, Khalid bin Salman, the crown prince's younger brother, who is the defense minister and uh, very close to the crown prince, came to Washington this past week, held very high level meetings uh, with the White House and Defense Department, uh, talking about the future of U.S.-Saudi relations, the future of Saudi-Israel normalization, and everything that's come out in the public domain from those meetings uh, and everything that I've heard uh, does reassure me that when this Uh, subsides on the other side of Hamas's destruction, uh, the Saudis actually are seeing an opportunity here uh, to see uh, a divide between Hamas and other parts of the Palestinian population, maybe uh, a vacuum to step into uh, to replace the Qatari, Turkish, Iranian radicalism that's been funded uh, with more moderate funding and support to political leaders, uh, and that this might actually open up Uh, at least opportunities to talk about uh, a peace uh, process that the administration has been pushing into this negotiation, and if the Israelis accept some Saudi-led process there, uh, which doesn't have to end in a two-state solution immediately, but is a process in the context of a Gaza that no longer has Hamas in charge, is that the new re-sparking opportunity to then also solidify the normalization pact alongside US security guarantees to Saudi Arabia. That's very convoluted and complicated. Uh, but stars may actually be aligning.
0: Fascinating. And, and it's nice to have a, a small glimmer of something approaching hope. Um, and I've only got about five minutes left, Rich, I could talk to you all day, but we only have five minutes left for today. Um, so maybe we can finish by asking you, I'm not going to ask you what the worst case scenario would be. But instead of that, can I ask you, First of all, what you think the best case scenario for all this would be, and secondly, what you think the most realistic scenario is for the end of this chapter?
1: Well, the best case scenario is that we hold both the head and the tentacles accountable uh, in the United States and the UK. Uh, and support our ally, uh, giving them the time and space to do what they need to do to cut off one tentacle for good, destroy Hamas, none of this humanitarian pause, ceasefire business, understand that that Hamas uses human shields, they're responsible for every death in Gaza, if Hamas wanted to release hostages, we could do so, they, they could do so, and we shouldn't be putting pressure on the Israelis to back down and keep Hamas there for another day because of the inhumanity of Hamas. Uh, That should just give us uh, more of an urge uh, to ensure we eliminate Hamas for good uh, right here and right now. Uh, But we also uh, bring the hammer down financially, uh, politically, and with uh, threats of of, of potential military action to restore deterrence against Iran. Um, I would like to see the UK prescribe the IRGC. The IRGC clearly has a hand in all of this. Um, the IRGC is running networks throughout the UK, the IRGC is somehow uh, helping foment some of these horrible anti-Semitic uh, protests that we're seeing in the streets. Um, why is the IRGC not on the terror list at this point? It yeah. uh, needs to be. Uh, why haven't we snapped back the UN Security Council resolution uh, to reimpose sanctions on Iran? It needs to happen. Yeah. I think if we can do that, it gives the space for the Saudi-Israel normalization. Uh, And it starts putting pressure on Iran to have to go back on its heels instead of playing offense against Israel and the West.
0: And what's the most realistic scenario in the last two, three minutes?
1: Uh, Realistic scenario uh, could be that still. Um, I think that we will, at this point, the trajectory of the Biden administration is to try to hold two different policies that contradict themselves together as long as possible, keep some sort of nuclear deal going, uh, but have a separate terrorism policy where they will support the elimination of Hamas uh, and potentially increase pressure on Hezbollah and Hamas uh, affiliates throughout the world. I think that would probably mean increased pressure on the IRGC as well. Uh, and so an invitation for the UK to still prescribe the IRGC, uh, this would be the moment to do it. I don't know how you could hold off any further. Um, so uh, even in that scenario, which I think still is, is a bad one in some ways, because you're saying you're opposed to subsidiaries, but you want to keep throwing money at the parent company, uh, you still at least will have some action to uh, increase Israel's security and take on these terrorism threats uh, that we face.
0: Fantastic. Well, Rich, I could, like I say, speak to you all day, but uh, we're out of time. So thank you so much. It's been fascinating, and very illuminating. Thank you for your analysis and hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Israel War Briefing from the Jewish Chronicle with me, Jake Wallace-Simons. Join us next time for more insight and analysis from leading experts.